Hello, Hive Nation, and welcome back to the Hive Nation podcast. Each week, we have leading experts in personal and professional development share their journeys and expertise to help you connect, engage, grow, and evolve. Here's JB to introduce today's guest. Hey, thanks, Greg. Uh, today, we have an awesome guest, uh, live and in person from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, Miss Clea Carrington is our guest today. Uh, Clea has a very diverse background, uh, including uh, the 2020 Indigenous Entrepreneur of the Year. Is that Fair, Women Entrepreneur of the Year? Uh, she is the uh, the mind behind the Canadian Blockchain Consortium. Uh, she's a, a director on on there, as a matter of fact, executive director, and um, she basically. Uh, was raised and was always part of a background within, you know, tech. So um, having a female entrepreneur in the tech side of it for us is a big deal as well, because uh, we're techie, but not uh, Kalea Carrington techie. So um, we are going to uh, touch base on that a bit today. But uh, Kalea, thanks for being on the podcast today. We really appreciate you having uh, time for this. No, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I, I'd like to just start with, I'd uh, just like to throw it out to you. Um, what does it take to be a uh, a female in today's tech uh, world and a female entrepreneur in today's tech world? And uh, how did you get there? Oh, goodness. What does it take? Um, I think my favorite words is like people have called me like tenacious. Like you just need to have a really solid drive to and a passion to do what you're doing, um, an ability to take an ample amount of rejection, uh, and ideally enough tools in your toolbox that you'll be able to uh, navigate all the hurdles that come from entrepreneurship, because it definitely is not an easy road to travel. For sure not. Um, so how did you, uh, where did you get the bug, or how did you get the bug for that? Uh, so I would say like it actually started from my parents. Like I was, I was raised by two entrepreneurs and, uh, my father. Um, so <clears throat> I guess I'll go a little bit further back. So when my mom was pregnant with my sister, my dad was kind of in construction at the time. And he had this idea. He's like, okay, I really want to be able to take care of my family. I want to become this like fortune 500 executive, but how do I get there? He was a musician. Most of his life, he had a great education. He didn't want to go back to school or work his way up a corporate ladder. So he kind of did this whole vision of what do all these major Fortune 500 executive CEOs have in common? And he actually found it was like ground transportation. You know, like CEO of Coca-Cola would like fly into the Vancouver airport. He's not going to rent a car and drive himself. He's generally going to get chauffeured. So my dad uh, got a loan, um, purchased a limo, put an ad out in the paper and said, okay, I'm going to chauffeur around all of these executives and I'm going to ask some questions. So from there, he ended up meeting this uh, really wealthy guy in BC, loved his business idea. I think my dad was like, he was struggling in that business to start for sure. Uh, I think he had like $2 left in his pocket when the guy basically invested like $1.2 million and let and grew him to a fleet of like 11. So his favorite was only shuffling around like all these major executives and they would keep the, you know, the partition down. So he would be able to listen to the conversations they were having. They liked him. So they'd answer all the questions that he had They'd even bring him into the boardroom. So he could learn all about like mergers and acquisitions and all these major things. And he took everything he learned there. And he realized by the time I came around, so I think it was maybe like two years in, 
Um, and I think I was, or no, maybe three years in, I was three years old. I think he said, when he sat me down, he's like, look, you're not going to understand maybe anything that I'm telling you. But the goal here is that at some point, by the time you hit probably 21, you and I are going to go into business together. I'm just going to teach you everything I'm learning. So this was before they had like CEO executive forums, right? Before when you're kind of like, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you're really a solopreneur and you had to figure it out all on your own. Um, I was the one my dad decided, I was like, I'm just going to talk to you about it because I don't have anyone else to listen. By the time I was five, my dad realized, okay, so if my daughter's really going to be anywhere in business based on what he's seen, she's really going to have to learn like ladylike skills. So he started putting me into etiquette classes. So my Friday nights as a child was spent learning how to like sit, walk, talk, and act like, like a lady, which benefits me now. I didn't really see it at the time, but by the time I was eight, my dad, uh, he was looking at potentially like selling the business and he wanted to, um, he uh, wanted me to learn about like finances. So we started bringing financial planners to the table that would teach you all about these like fiduciary responsibilities and compounding interest rates and all this other kind of stuff. By the time I was 11, my dad decided, okay, I've learned enough stuff. I no longer want to be in the concierge service. I now want to be kind of like in the public speaking. He wanted to be a, a business consultant, so to speak. So he started uh, his company called Carrington Summers, and he started learning from a gentleman named Jim Rohn. Um, I'm not too sure how popular, or most people might not know about who he is today, but he was the same gentleman that uh, trained Tony Robbins. So when I was 11, I started going to like these Jim Rohn workshops and learning all about business and realizing, I don't know if I was so much passionate about business, but I was really passionate about all the time I got to spend with my dad learning this stuff. Um, so I learned a lot. I started my first business, I think, when I was 13 with my dad's help. And yeah, by the time I was 21, him and I actually started our very first business together, but I'd never really watched my parents work for other people. I'd only ever seen them work for themselves. They never really put a lot of emphasis on getting a degree and working your way up the corporate ladder. It was like, if you really want freedom in life, you have to learn how to create that for yourself and you have to find something you're really passionate about. And if, if you love what you do, it's not a job, right? It's just an, another amazing ability to, to enjoy your life. So a little bit on my story and how I kind of got into it from a really young age. And um, I've pretty much been an entrepreneur my whole life. I'm not sure how many listeners out there are an entrepreneur at three. I'll be honest with you. I wasn't an entrepreneur at three. I think my first business was 13. <laughs> I, I actually well, you were a growing consultant at three. Consulting at three because <laughs> you were part of the, your dad's conversation. And that's, that's good enough for me. That's uh that's a great story. Like we just don't uh, hear that type of stories. No. Like that's a super story. So um, at 13, your first business was? Uh, actually a, a lawn mowing business. Okay. Yeah. And then so you my dad had taken. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, my dad took me to do these uh, this thing called Corral Draw back then. Like before you had all these amazing things like Canva, you actually had to learn how to like make a circle or make all these different things. And graphic design was a lot harder. Um, so I learned how to make my own posters on the computer that my dad had. And I just like put them all around uh, the community that I was in. And I actually grew up to like three different communities. Uh, and I would take my parents' lawnmower um fill it up with gas and I would literally just like walk it to these different areas and just like mow the lawn I'd make like 20 bucks a lawn but back then you went back like I'm not gonna date myself but decades ago and uh it's really really good money I saved up super good like I think that summer like I made like 500 dollars or something which was huge for me and yeah it was it was a lot of fun I, I didn't start with a lemon 
band. <laughs> uh, so you uh, graduated up from the lawn mowing business to what? And then uh, from there, uh, I guess I, I was really excited about natural medicine for a long time. My mother was um, kind of like a holistic practitioner. Uh, she was a colon therapist for a long time. And then when I was like 18, I uh, started managing her health food store. She started one of those. And I really, really loved it. I got super good at um, just kind of helping people with their health, if uh, pre and postnatal, even if they had cancer, different things like that. And I got recruited to this place in Vancouver that was um, a company doing a detox program. And my results on the detox program was the best across Canada. So we were receiving like insane results for people. And it was because we we're kind of mixing like herbal medicine with food medicine. Um, so I get there, but <clears throat> I ended up becoming a young mom in Vancouver and ended up having to move home. Uh, and that's when my dad kind of found out, he's like, okay, my young lady here is uh, going to be a mom. And he had this like existential crisis on like, what's the next generation going to have? It was right around the time where Al Gore was talking about climate change and the polar ice caps melting and all the polar bears dying and all these things. Oh. And freaking out about, is there going to be like clean air for this child to breathe when he's 20? Is there going to be like clean water? Will marine life still exist? Like, will he be able to play on a playground that wasn't previously a landfill? It was, it was a new conversation. And so we started getting into like clean tech before clean tech was a buzzword. So my dad, um, he went to our elder. So our elder is uh, Choctaw. And our elder was in the city and my dad asked him like, you know, I, I have this, this vision. I want to help the planet. My daughter and I are going to start a company. I'm just not really sure what to do. So he had an indigenous sweat and ended up having a vision within that sweat that led to a dream that actually created the technology. So we incorporated the company. I think it was 21 when we, when we started it and uh, him and I spent the better part of uh, a decade together learning how to grow that business. Now, at the same time, it was a startup. So I learned how to do aesthetics, like manis, petties, and laser and all that. And I would do that evenings and weekends while um, my son was asleep or my mom could watch him and then spend time on the ACI company during the day while my son was at daycare. Wow. Interesting. And then how did you decide to get into blockchain? So that was really interesting. So my my father unfortunately passed away in like 2014, um, and it was we're really quite sad about how uh, how that happened. My dad's tech hadn't been out of a laboratory before that point. Like we'd done a lot of work together uh, to to do the R and D project to get the burner system to where it was. But the next step was kind of commercializing it. Unfortunately, like we were able to get a field trial with a company called uh, CNRL uh, in conjunction with uh, Alberta Innovates, and they had a project demonstration program. It's like a commercialization voucher. Field trial was going great, but of course it was 2014. So like we're almost done the trial. And next thing we know, oil and gas tanks, the whole industry is tanking. Everyone's laying off. Budgets are slashed. And we're sitting here with this new startup like okay, I don't know what to do next. Like my dad was the one who generally was out there meeting with all the oil and gas gentlemen. And I had done a lot of like um, building out the, the marketing and, and all the other kind of stuff. So I wasn't really into the investor relations side. I definitely wasn't as deep into the tech or was I as deep into the relationships with oil and gas. So it was definitely a struggle when that hit and it took me 18 months I think I knocked on the door of like every major oil and gas company that was willing to talk to me I was not an engineer I was young like still in my 20s 
trying to convince them like what this technology was capable of doing. And I finally found this really incredible woman. Her name was Suzanne West. And um, I showed her a video of my dad kind of talking about his experience and the sweat and the goal with the technology and she actually I remember she she called me one night like crying after watching the video and she just felt very spiritually connected to my dad and she's like I really want to help you with this so she started her own accelerator fund to commercialize the burner system and she was going to buy like 17 of them so once we got them up and proven that they worked it was an amazing partnership I was like on cloud nine this incredible woman was mentoring me and during the part of the mentorship, she started talking to me about this amazing idea she had for the Alberta Blockchain Consortium, or she called it the ABC. She's like, she really thought that blockchain technology was going to help with uh, oil and gas companies reaching net zero goals, creating better efficiencies, removing, eliminating redundancies. Um, and she was really, really passionate about that. Uh, so unfortunately, while we were in the midst of the, the trial that we were doing with her, um, the investors that she had, I believe it was actually BlackRock, owned the majority of her company. They did not like the clean tech direction she was going in, which is really surprising considering the virtue signaling that they force other companies to do now. Mm -hmm. But she was doing business as usual, and they fired her from the board. She had tried to bring in 17 different clean technologies to meet net zero the hypocrisy of this massive freaking fund that is forcing everyone into virtue signaling and woke transgender nonsense at this point is fascinating to me considering they let go of a woman who was so passionate about reaching these sustainable development goals um, earlier than even their 2030 agenda. So I digress. But unfortunately, after that, she ended up passing away, I think, within two months, a little over two months of being removed from her company of a very ag aggressive brain cancer, which I find a little suspect considering she was one of the healthiest women I knew. Like she bicycled everywhere. She didn't eat sugar. Like she was very, very health conscious. She meditated. Like she was a, a, an incredible woman. Um, but after that kind of failed, I stopped trying to go into the oil and gas industry because it was just, it was like an uphill battle where you'd roll a boulder up a hill and watch it crush you on a daily basis on the way down. It was like, why am I still doing this? So I remember being five months pregnant. My mentor had passed away. I was kind of trying to figure out what to do next with my life. And, uh, I had a, what got me into blockchain on top of listening to her talk, I'd around the same time had a company reach out saying they want to invest and they want to invest Bitcoin into my business. And I was like, do I get real money? I wish I would have had the fortune back then. It's like, is that money? Like, do I get like actual dollars or just the funny digital money that you're talking about? And uh, but it was a stat a substantial amount that they were talking about. And I was like, well, I can't really discount this. So I call my lawyer and I'm like, could you investigate this company? Like, is it a real thing? Like they're saying this. So I kind of want to learn more. And while my lawyer was trying to figure out from their lawyer what they were really trying to do. I reached out to them and I was like, hey, could you just give me like some kind of indication, like uh, some educational resources so I could learn about Bitcoin? They sent me this uh, Netflix documentary called Banking on Bitcoin, which I think I actually fell asleep hearing it. I was like, I don't know what the heck this is supposed to be. This, again, makes absolutely zero sense to me. And uh, but I, I was again, so like I really need to want to, to figure this out. But I'd spent so many years in tech that the idea of trading was just like very foreign to me in the financial market side. So I tried taking a class and I got really lucky. This guy showed up during one of my classes and started talking to me about mining and teaching me about these computers. So I was like, so hold on. So you can build a computer and you can program the computer and the computer will create this digital funny money that you're talking about, but there's actually a science behind this. It's not just attempting to trade. 
Um, so I got really excited about learning how to mine. I started reading all as many white papers as I could get my hands on, started understanding like Merkle trees, mathematics and the science, cryptography. I went down a rabbit hole of trying to understand like encryption, cryptography, and it brought me into economics. Started reading every book I could find on Maria M. Rothbart, Austrian economics versus Keynesian economics, which also really opened me up to like, how's our world really work? And why did this money come out? in response to the 2008 housing collapse. So I like economics became like the biggest part of my study on top of the quotation slides. So I started building my time was Just waiting to land. Uh, you're breaking up it's there. Breaking up. Yeah. Oh. Do you guys edit these videos? Yeah. Oh, perfect. Where did I, where did you get me breaking up? Uh, like it was only for the last, last like five seconds. Five seconds. So. Oh, perfect. Um, see, I got really passionate about building uh, a mining farm. So in my basement, I started putting together all these 1080 TIs, 1070 TIs, probably had about 260 graphics cards by the time I was done. And it was taking up pretty much all of my evenings. I would spend like eight hours a day working and then like eight hours a day in my basement. It was hot. I was definitely overheating my family. I was so fascinated about how you could program this to basically mine digital gold. And I started teaching free classes. I was like, why don't we build classes for people to learn how to build their own mining equipment instead of getting hosed by buying it and then trying to educate people on like, what is money? Because there's so many other alternative coins out there. And based on reading all of the research papers I was doing and my investment background, I realized that the majority of these things were also scams. Like 99% of cryptos out there were illicit securities that shouldn't have been accessing the eligible market. And I was like, people need to learn how to do their own due diligence. So I'm not going to give investment advice, but I was trying to teach people how to look at this the same way they would the stock market. So I got a bit of a reputation there. And then one day a gentleman named James Graham came to me from a company called Guild One and said, look, you know, you're building a reputation for yourself, but we all know how much you really love Suzanne. Did you take her idea for the Alberta Blockchain Consortium and do something with it? And I was like, trying to figure out what it was like I know she had spoken to me about it but I didn't know exactly what it was so I called my lawyer I guess it hadn't been incorporated there was no website so I was like all right let's start this up then let's make it into a thing so initially I just had invested all of the money I'd kind of been making in crypto into turning this into a, an organization that would be prominent considered next to like groups like the Alberta Machine Learning Institute or Alberta IoT like how do we make blockchain a pillar in the Alberta ecosystem <clears throat> So I hosted my very first event called the Blockchain and Technology Symposium. I flew in Saifedean Amous, who was like the, you know, prominent leader globally, uh, a PhD economist, uh, Austrian economist, uh, to, to do the keynote speech. Um, we brought in government, ministries, um, academic institutions, deans, a uh, dean of Nate. We brought in the CEO of Alberta Innovates. So all of my connections I'd made through my tech company, I was trying to bring in and go, hey, let's talk about the intersection between this technology and what it's going to do for all of these different industries. Uh, it, the event turned out so well, I had a VP of Royal Bank come to me and say, I'd really love to talk to you about your idea and, and, and what you're trying to accomplish here. And she was able to get sign off to become my very first board member and RBC to become my first corporate member. So I was able to start off an organization going, let's build credibility in this space, a space that is considered highly suspect. This, this was after 2008 collapsed or 2018 and trying to fit, find a way to bring major brands, the Deloitte's, the Accenture's, the KPMG's, the RBC's, the Scotia's, you name it and work alongside these 
smaller, younger companies that were going to be doing credible things in this space to help build up their grand credibility, brand credibility, sorry, and um, make Canada one of the leading destinations for, for this industry. So fast track that uh, since, you know, 2017, when I started to now, we're the largest industry association across the country with prominent engagement with regulators, government, industry, and we act as a consulate. All the companies that want to come into the country will come through us to meet with the ecosystem. We host events all across the country. So my my passion for wanting to keep Suzanne's legacy kind of grew into this major organization. And every time we do an event, we always talk about how, you know, Suzanne was the reason why we're, we're doing what we're doing. She was so passionate about this. She loved people, the planet. She wanted to make sure that we were stewards for the environment and we we're going to, you know, lead this technology in, in a pretty incredible way. So yeah, what's kind of got me into the shift from combustion tech to blockchain. That's incredible. It's amazing. So you mentioned, and it's something I think that a lot of the listeners that aren't, that know nothing about crypto or uh, blockchain with it being a suspect at times for lack of better terms, industry, because of the lack of education people have on it, what is the difference between blockchain and the word crypto? Okay, so when a lot of people hear blockchain and crypto, there's a reason why they always relate the two pieces together. So when the group of developers, Satoshi Nakamoto, which is a pseudonym, um, came out with the idea for Bitcoin, they, they released the white paper. It was in response to the 2008 um, housing crisis that was going on. There's two things to Bitcoin. One was blockchain. So blockchain was the protocol. Bitcoin was the product. So a blockchain or distributed ledger technology, as some other people refer to it, was basically a database and a database that was immutable. So everybody in the world can have access to this particular database. It's decentralized. So that's what, what that meant. We could all have a portion of the blockchain. We could all support that blockchain. The product that was being transacted on this database was Bitcoin, right? So when people look at blockchain and they see what does this talk, what is this technology and what implications does it have? If you're looking for a transparent database that is immutable, that cannot be altered or shifted or changed, or if it could be, it would have permanent record of that, of that change uh, that could store large amounts of data that could be accessible to everybody, right? So you're seeing that in places like um, real estate for blockchain, agriculture for blockchain, supply chain for blockchain. If you want to have proof of provenance of an item, so say you want to put your cattle on blockchain, that Wagyu beef that you're raising in Alberta and you want to be sell in Asia, you can put the, the food feeding records into a blockchain that's immutable, the veterinary records into the blockchain that's immutable. You can do all these things to prove the entire the where this cow was raised, how this cow was fed, how this care was how this cow was taken care of, and the fact that it's a high value, um, you know, piece of meat in comparison to just a regular cow, I guess, and sell it on the market for a better price. But you've proven transparency. So blockchains are very transparent. When you add crypto to it, cryptocurrency comes from cryptography because that's one of the underlying technologies in blockchain. So it's a crypto, and then they're considering it money currency, right? So cryptography based money. Most cryptos are not money, right? So in, unless unless the government deems it as 
a form like a monetary good that can be bartered and traded within you know their region it generally is not considered money it's considered like a commodity so bitcoin in canada is a commodity bitcoin in america is a commodity bitcoin in el salvador is a currency right so it's really dependent on on how it's being gauged most people who are into this do see it as a currency because you can buy and sell and barter and trade it meets all the definitions of money now things like ethereum Vitalik said himself, it was never designed to be money. Ethereum, when it, it was, they added a platform, right? So the, the, the Ethereum network is a platform where anyone with some skill sets um, in coding can develop out an ERC-20 token and build a blockchain, like a subchain to their main chain. So that's how the ICO boom kind of hit was originally there was Bitcoin. There was some other coins that kind of came around with it, but Ethereum really propelled it to be internationally accessible to everybody on their network because they built out the opportunity for like, you know, thousands and thousands of ERC-20 tokens and everyone was trying to fundraise on their token, which is why everyone kept hearing about the initial coin offerings. There were some that have their completely own platform uh, that they use. It's not off Bitcoin's network. Like you have Litecoin or Dogecoin or some of the other ones. Like everyone's kind of tried to make their own spin on it for whatever reason they want faster transactions. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things. But if if you think about the cryptocurrency industry, Bitcoin's the only thing that I would put any real focus on because it's it's actually a form of digital money. Everything else is an interesting project that you can choose to support or not. And then blockchain has opportunities to impact businesses globally as well that has no monetary value attached to it. So in other words, you do not need a token to operate a blockchain. But if you want to be a cryptocurrency, you do need blockchain to operate that. Does that make sense? I think there's a, a lot more than uh, the the 10 minutes that you tried to explain that to two idiots uh, that we would need to uh, explain and, and understand uh, before I'm going to go out and, and start a course here today on how to start a blockchain yeah. uh, play. I'm just saying that that's... Uh, your, your explanation was probably bang on. Two idiots like uh, Greg and I are probably like, hmm, look at that bird. <laughs> no, but the, <laughs> I agree with JB, but all jokes aside, that that was uh, a great explanation, mm -hmm. especially for the Hive Nation. Like the, the that definition that you gave gives that clarity because so many people, again, we're in the generation of what we consider headline readers. They read the headline, they don't read anything else. So they never educate themselves enough to talk about topics like this. Oh, crypto this, crypto that. Okay, well, tell me more. And they can't. They go, oh, well, you just need to buy this coin. Why? Wow. That's a great explanation versus what you just did. You actually gave us the real description the real goods because you have that expertise so i uh, know that that's incredible there's one that i follow was called the milk road uh do you follow the milk road you know i've never heard the milk road i've heard of the silk road <laughs> the milk road is uh is the uh the newsletter if you want to call it that for uh cryptocurrency from everything from bitcoin to dogecoin to you you name it, uh rhythms on there I mean, everything's on there and um so like they i i follow them very closely because it's a it's a group of three or four guys and they basically have like they share their portfolio as to 
you know, the truth as to everybody talks about how much money they made on Bitcoin, but these guys talk about how much money they lost on Bitcoin as well, right? So it's it's a it's a it's a market driven thing, obviously. And I see uh, this morning it was over like forty seven thousand four hundred and some bucks. I, I think that was the number they had on there, or that was yesterday's close. So it's obviously come up, and uh, you know, from its down peak, but. Um, what would you say to people listening to this about investing in Bitcoin and or, you know, where do you see, you know, the 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 end result of Bitcoin? Because a lot of these big banks have kind of bucked against uh, Bitcoin and against like digital uh, uh, currency to begin with. So what's your what's your take on that? Um, like to me. So I guess to really explain that, I have to you have to understand money. Right. So if you understand like economics and the way that our world works, money is a paradigm that has been enforced upon us to be able to give up our most precious resource, which is our time. And when we give up our time, we're being rewarded in that with dollars. Right. If our dollars do not have, if there's nothing backing our dollar, if our, if our dollar is not sound, Right? If our dollar does not have the ability to maintain its value long-term, then what you're doing is essentially giving up your time for something that has little to no value. So in the fiat currency world that we live in today in Canada, it has lost 90% of its spending power or its value over the last 50 years. So you're giving up your time and through what the government wants to do, which is inflation, they are robbing you of the value of your time. So every single year as they increase the rate of inflation and they say, what, 2%, 3%, whatever, how they're introducing more and more of these dollars into supply and there's nothing backing those dollars, then that means your ability to save and spend long-term is depleted on an annual basis by 3 to 6%. And if you're not investing the dollars that you're earning, if you don't have the or, or any liquidity, to it to invest those dollars that you're earning to make up the three to six basis points, which it's it's always been more than that. That's just what they freaking claim. Then you're literally doing this with your money as opposed to doing this. So when we had the gold standard and we had gold, which was sound money, the value of gold was very consistent for thousands of years. It was consistent. When we had consistent value in our money and not inflation, people had what was called time preference. They would go, okay, if I really want to buy this home or I really want to buy this car, they would go and work. They would trade their valuable time, be repaid in dollars and save those dollars and take until they could fully afford to buy that house or buy that car or, or buy something they knew would be a legacy that they could leave to that next generation. Today, we're bombarded with spending. So no, no, you don't have to save. It's fine. The inflation rates are so high anyway that if you don't buy it today, it's going to you know be harder to buy tomorrow. So and don't worry, we'll give you debt so you can pay for it as well. You don't have to to, to do anything besides just let us give you a credit card, and that's another race to the bottom. So they're hyperinflating your currency at exponential rates, handing out debt like skittles, and the monetary system on a global scale is looking towards collapsing. Now, what does that mean for something like Bitcoin? So when you have a digital form of money. What do you want it to do? You want it to have value over time and space. You want it to have value long-term. Inflation devalues the dollar. So you want to have something that's not deflationary. Bitcoin has what they call known scarcity. There's only 21 million of them. You cannot create more. You cannot 
Um, you cannot manipulate it. You cannot double spend it. The fixed supply is a fixed supply. It's the only form of money we've ever seen that has an actual form of known scarcity. Now, why would you want that versus the inflationary money? You want some that you know will continue to hold value long term. Bitcoin annually, if you look at it, even though it's a volatile market, has only increased in value since 2008. It went from being you know, considered, you know, funny money for cypherpunks on the internet to being worth at today's dollar right now, close to $58,000, Canadian. It's a top performing asset the world has ever seen. Why? Because people are realizing there's no safety in their dollar anymore, especially considering COVID 200 times the amount of money we had in circulation was created during that event. So we're way worse than three to 6% inflation. If 200 times the amount of money that we had in supply could be created with the push of a button, thanks to our government and the, and the Bank of Canada, your money has no value. And we're seeing that now because housing has doubled, right? The cost of food has doubled. Everything is going up because there's no trust in the money. There's no scarcity in the money. So we want to have something that has known scarcity something that can have value long-term over time and space, something that you can fractionalize, right? You don't have to spend a whole Bitcoin. You can take it into a one millionth of a decimal point and be able to spend a fraction of a Bitcoin. So it has barter and trade and there's a unit of account. So all the aspects that make up money, Bitcoin does, but in a way that's fully transparent, every single person on the planet can get access and see Bitcoin's blockchain. You can see exactly what's been minted, what's still to be minted, right? You know that there's scarcity of that asset and you know that there's transactability. I can send this digital asset anywhere in the world within seconds, as long as I have an address to send it to, and I can exchange it for goods and services. So to me, it's the soundest money the world has ever seen. It has known scarcity versus something like gold. And unlike gold, it's very easily transportable. If you think about even like physical, tangible cash, if you want to send a million dollars to a third world country, how long would that take you? And how many questions would you have to answer? If you want to go to the bank and say, I want to send this company a million dollars, they will literally ask you for everything, including your firstborn child, and basically, you know, give you a cavity search, try and figure out why you're sending that money, even though it's your money. Because realistically, the government goes, no, I own this money, or the bank does. I have ownership of this money. You're asking me to get access to something that you conceive to be yours. It's literally just like ones and zeros on a balance sheet, but you want me to send this over there. Well, you're going to have to explain to me why you want it to send. If I want to send a million dollars in transactional value for something in Bitcoin, I could do, there you go. I don't have to answer anything to anybody. I have sovereignty and ownership over my own funds. So there's a lot of value that Bitcoin offers that there's no other cryptocurrency out there that can offer that same value with known scarcity or that actually acts with Austrian economic principles as money. Everything else is trying to be, oh, look at my supply. I can have billions. Well, guess what? I can have billions of Canadian dollars too, but they don't mean anything. They're basically worth toilet paper at this point. Mm -hmm. That's 100% true. Money buys you lunch. That's it. It's, it's useless. It's completely valueless. Yeah, there's no value to it. It's, it's a value that people put on it. So people go, oh, well, what's backing Bitcoin? The fact that like you, you now see the JP Morgans, the Black Rocks, the Vanguards, all these made the the Michael Saylors, they all know that their dollar is worthless. They all see the impending economic collapse that's coming. They are looking for a safe haven asset. Real estate is considered a safe haven asset. You know, there's other things. 
Bitcoin is the only transactable, um, you know, digital commodity that can act as a safe haven asset for high net worth individuals right now, because everyone's dropping the dollar. You're seeing the president of South Africa going, drop it. Mexico, there's places in Mexico that won't even accept the U.S. dollar anymore. There's no value to it. And if you think about Canada, we're so closely tied to the U.S. dollar that as long as we hold Canadian dollars, if you keep your savings in fiat currency, you're effing yourself. Absolutely. You're losing your money at rapid rates. And unless you're making 15 to 20 basis points a year, you're not even stabilizing the value that you're losing. You have to make above that. Yeah. And most people aren't sophisticated enough investors to even know how to keep up with the rate of inflation, even at their businesses. If their business isn't growing at 10 to 15 points per year, you're not even keeping up with the rate of inflation and the cost of goods. But what does that mean for us? If it costs them more, it costs us more. All right. So this lack of sound money, this complete disregard for how human beings have to, you know, operate in this, you know, financial ecosystem. I don't know. Either that it's completely planned for us to collapse is is one of the options there, or their idea of monetary policy is so outdated and ridiculous, and no one's decided to update it. Like they're working on what they call Keynesian economics, which is spend theory. And Keynesian economics was literally designed by a wealthy, uh, like I think trust fund baby in England a couple hundred years ago, who never did a day's work in his life, who was like, never wanted to save. It's like, as long as we're spending and we're stimulating the economy, we're fine. How much more money can you introduce into economy? So if you have more and more dollars and you have fixed amount of goods, right? So it can't as a small market. If you have unlimited funding and it's chasing fewer and fewer goods, what do you think is going to happen? The cost of those goods is going to go up. But if you have something like Bitcoin with a fixed supply and you have all of these goods chasing a scarce asset, what's going to happen to the value of that asset? It's going to go up, right? So it's a supply and demand ratio. We have an unlimited amount of dollars right now that are worthless chasing a limited amount of commodity. This is what's happening in the housing market. We don't have unlimited housing. If we did, it'd be cheap. Justin Trudeau, <laughs> excuse me, I have something, okay? I have something in my throat here. You're <laughs> <laughs> here to help Canadians, don't you feel special? <laughs> um, uh, that is truly, truly interesting. Um, the one thing I want to tail back to on the start of the podcast, you mentioned mentorship and you mentioned, you know, there's the, the solopreneurship side of it. Clearly, you didn't gain this expertise um, without without some kind of guidance. I know you talked about some of your mentors, but how important is it to have mentors and other high performers and other experts in your circle, Kalea? Oh, extremely important. Absolutely. Like I've I've had mentorship for as long as I can remember. My my dad was my first mentor. I've had mentors like Eric Trump, George Ross. Jay Abrams, Nito Cobain. I've had some amazing opportunities to be mentored in my life and learn from really, really incredible people. Um, I'm always looking for people to teach me things. I, even in partnership, it's like, what, what can I learn? How can I grow from you? How can you teach me? You know, can I be a better person with you? I think that if you're not consistently trying to learn and, and grow and gain new skill sets, kind of, it's what's the point? Right. A lot of people just kind of get a base level of knowledge and go with it and they never open up their understandings or they never deepen their understandings and they're not willing to take multiple perspectives. I think that you need as many 
various perspectives as possible to be able to truly actually formulate your own opinion. Have you ever met those people where it's like, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. It's like they got oh, yeah. one opinion and they got it off freaking and and after that, it's just like, well, that's got to be the truth. It's like, you are a small-minded, simple motherfucker. And I trust nothing that comes out of your mouth because you so haven't true. actually done any of the personal research. It's like, I trust the science. Yeah, I love those people. I, I love the science too. Nothing, I just don't trust it when it's arbitrarily down my throat. <laughs> right. Nothing makes me want to put my head in a doorstop and slam it a couple of times than when I run into people like that. Like the fact that there's people like that in this planet and you know we talked about the headline readers like you're so close-minded and you're so ignorant to the potential and the capacity that we as people have to grow and learn from each other and actually build something incredible like none of the blockchain is possible if the group of people was eh, 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 my head hurts it's too much knowledge what that's ridiculous. Never open to change, right? And that's the, that's the problem with half the people. Average good and great. Well, I think they get, get scared. People are very, I don't know, it's like people are sheeple right now. It's really interesting watching this day and age. Like everything that's unfolded over the last couple of years has really taught me 20% of the population has the ability for critical thinking skills. Is it that high? 20. That's pretty high. Well, I Say that I would go based on the vaccination rate. So when they talk about how many people got vaccinated in a certain area, the ones that didn't are like, okay, so we have this many, this percentage of critical thinkers in this particular jurisdiction, right? And everyone else, I, I know a lot of people gave the example of like, well, I really wanted to travel, or this was really important, or well, I was told, and, and you know, for my health, and it's like. There was no critical thinking that was put into that. There was no concept or thought process of why is it that they're doing what they're doing? Is this, no, no, no thought process, nothing beyond what the media told you? Okay, so lack of critical thinking skills and however that plays out for you, I wish you the absolute best. Mm -hmm. When I think of people with critical thinking skills, generally they're very sovereign minded, right? They're not going to just do whatever the government tells them to do, right? They're more the entrepreneurs, even more entrepreneurial people or, or critical thinkers and, and they're very multidimensional, right? The people who just, Take it at face value, it's like they see things very linear. It's like, well, I was told this and there we go. Right. So to me, I, I don't know. Like anyone who had like um ADHD, right? Because we don't think the same way everybody else does. ADHD is like a superpower that creates a lot of critical thinking because you're connecting dots that most people can't see. And then you'd be called a conspiracy theorist. It's like, oh well. You know, you you must be crazy or you must be a conspiracy theorist because you're seeing things that way. And that's not what the media tells me. It's like, no, it means I just have critical thinking capabilities and I'm able to actually perceive of what's happening on a grander scale, right? And use logic to disseminate that information that I'm bringing in. But it, that's not a skill that everybody has. No, it's not the opinion that they wanted to hear, though, Claire. That's the problem. They have an agenda. Well, I'm not about your opinion right so well i'm sorry i'm not, not here to you know coddle people's feelings if you get triggered by what i say that's on you i'm not gonna <laughs> you know be more mindful of my communication because you're triggered we are never going to uh go against your thought pattern no to do that and that made me think of a conversation i had with uh a individual not too long ago 
I don't watch the news. This is, you know, for good, bad, or otherwise, whatever. Form your own opinion. I don't watch the news. I don't read the news. But here, I'll tell you why. So my friend went, well, then you, what, so you just live in this blissful, ignorant world and you don't know anything? I'm like, no, but I seek out the knowledge that I actually want to know. I don't need to know about the bullshit little pissy match that they got in parliament. I'm going to search out, oh, you know, I'm working in this industry. What's the actual news happening in the mining world or in this world or in blockchain? Uh, Hmm. You know, there's a election coming up. Hypothetically, if it was next week, I'd I'd seek that knowledge. I'm not going to wait for somebody to feed me this uh, manufactured news media that's uh, narrative. That's a narrative, right? And I, the person looked at me that I was talking to. They they didn't have anything to say, and I went, "Yeah, because you were trying to call me an idiot for not doing something that everybody else does." Maybe that's just me, but. It makes my life a lot better because I know I have a lot more productive things that I could do than just sit in front of the telly and watch the news spew bullshit or prop Justin. Yeah, exactly. Pedestal. Anyway, that's for a whole nother day. (laughs) Never, I've never actually really sat down and and watched the news. The thing I found the most fascinating about news, um, especially during COVID, was this like, Everything that was coming out was was so scripted and was so designed for fear, right? So what is the easiest way to control a person? Keep them afraid, right? And if you can create mass hysteria and mass fear and keep people separated and apart, they're not going to question the narrative. They're not going to meet with the critical thinkers. Why do you think it was like jabby pokied versus not jabby pokey? Because the not jabby pokied were critical thinkers that were questioning the narrative. You don't want that around people who are complying with the narrative, right? So that the purpose of media is for the major corporations, the central banks and the powerful elite to share whatever narrative, whatever control pattern they wanna have on a general populace that has been so mind warped for so many years that they're not taught to think outside of it. And if they are, what happens? Well, if you don't do what we say, you can't go out in a plane to train an automobile. You can't go out with popular society. You're actually a danger to society. You're trying to kill grandma. So even if you want to be a critical thinker, if you're so used to having to flow with the masses and you don't have enough gumption to go against it, well, that that's exactly what they want. They want to fear you, make you so afraid that they that you just follow with whatever control narrative that's coming out with. What's the next one coming out right now? You have people that are hyper hysterical on climate change. And it's like, if you guys spent five minutes actually spending some time looking at the science, here's my favorite one. Okay, do you know how much carbon dioxide is actually in the atmosphere right now? Right now, do you know? We're net zero, aren't we? Okay, no, 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 no. 0.0003%. That's how much carbon dioxide, or 4%, sorry. In the whole world, that's the level of carbon dioxide. So if you think of the planet, 0.0004%, that's how much carbon is actually currently in our atmosphere. And we are trying everything that we possibly can to eradicate carbon output. What do you think human beings exhale? (laughs) I don't know, just a, a weird coincidence here. But how much carbon human beings actually impact that's been scientifically proven is 0.0001. 
and human life on the planet would no longer be sustainable if we got below 0.0002. So everyone is hysterical over an emission that is literally creating the greenest planet that we've had from a scientific perspective. Plants require carbon dioxide to breathe in for photosynthesis and then produce oxygen. We need that symbiotic relationship. So you're trying to eliminate carbon. What do you think that does to our oxygen supply? I mean, all kinds of just literally logical thought processes you can have on this that take you down some interesting rabbit holes, but make you sound like a crazy person to other people. But it's like, what's the goal of that? Why are you trying to create people to be more hysterical? But you know what? The government is so competent at solving homelessness and hunger and fixing the potholes in your road. But if you just pay them more taxes, they'll fix the weather. Like, are you fucking kidding me? And people are that stupid that it's like, oh, absolutely. Climate change was made with oil-based products and petroleum. I don't know how you got there, what pavement you walked on, what your clothing is made of, uh-huh. or what vegan item that you ate that day that probably destroyed an entire freaking crop to get all your avocados and crap like that. Uh-huh. The hypocrisy of these people and the lack of education it's my it's mind-blowing it's it's the propaganda machine is amazing it's like eliminate yourself is basically always, what they're telling you to do i've always said though clay follow the money and you'll find the answer and that's that was the same thing for covid that's mm-hmm. the same thing for this bullshit and that's that's, that's the way it is follow the money you'll find the answer period at the end of the yeah most, most people don't want to do that because if they find the answer it's a little scary <laughs> well you're never going to find the answer because it's not part of somebody's agenda but it's uh, the agenda that they want to push on us, but at least we have us three that are our own thought process. Yeah. There's uh, more sovereignty in a Zoom call than there is in certain uh, Fun. buildings. He's uh, back to back now. Yeah. Yesterday back-to-back. we talked about it as well, or last week, I guess. Last week's podcast, we talked about sovereignty. I think it's an important topic for everybody. Like, to be sovereign, to be able to, to be free. I mean, isn't that a war that people have been fighting like a tale as old as time? Like people want to have autonomy over their own lives. And right now we don't, we don't have freedom. Like we live in Canada, which is supposed to be the freest country in the world. People can't afford a house. They can't afford to eat. We're rapid rates of homelessness. Immigration has come completely out of control. And we have a childlike tyrannical dictator that on a whim gets to tell us what we can and cannot do with our money. They can lock down our bank accounts. They can jail peaceful protesting. You can't say whatever it is that you want to say online. We can't even access American news media outlets right now because Google won't let us and Instagram won't let us and Facebook won't let us because it doesn't go with whatever the government narrative is because they introduce bills like C60. I mean, it's fascinating to us that what what we used to take for granted 20 years ago, mind you, we've probably never truly been free, but those freedoms are being taken away from us at such a rate, but yet not enough people are really fighting back on it. Like, look what's happening in Germany. You have millions of people protesting. In Canada, we had thousands of people protesting, but the second they, thre- they threatened to take away your bank account, that left. Yep. Right? Like... How is that a free country? The, the 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 right to free speech and and peaceful protesting that was something that was always considered a God given right in Canada. We don't have that anymore. 
and they will find any any manner to take that away from you, which and is so, petrifying. And then the media will portray you as a Nazi or a fringe minority with unacceptable views. Unacceptable views in Canada? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like this is the country of diversity. We're not anymore. It's like, and the amount of Canadians that are fleeing to other countries just to get back a semblance of the freedom that they thought they had here. I never thought I'd ever want to leave this country. I never thought I ever would. And now it's like, uh, all right, well, if I just did this and this, and like, if I could, you know, my co-parenting situation here and like Costa Rica is looking pretty friendly over here. Exactly. No, you're right. hundred percent. You're right. And shout out to Ryan Mickler because he uh, wrote the book Sovereignty. That's what yeah. we talked about. And uh, yeah. so Ryan Ryan uh, was ahead of his game. He wrote that a few years ago. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, Clay, we could probably talk to you all day, I'll be honest. We like the last conversation. <laughs> last conversation we had, that time went so fast that, you know, we first Joe Rogan length podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're going on hour 15 here with Clay a character. <laughs> we're, we're, we're a bottle of scotch tea. We're in the rabbit hole now, folks. Uh, you get me a bottle of scotch, believe me, the rabbit hole will get a lot. There'd be a lot more swearing. It sound like a trucker stop. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Genuine is genuine. I've exactly. Said that. Exactly. You know, there's a, you know, to, to end it off on a bit of a rabbit hole, there's a time and place for everything, but people that are so afraid not to just be their genuine self, if you say fuck, if that's what who you are and it's not forced, go say ahead it. and say fuck. I do. <laughs> say it. It's not, it doesn't hurt my feelings. You might hurt somebody's. Yeah. I don't give a shit about theirs. Apparently. Yeah. If you You're not offended? I thought that was offensive, you know. All right. <laughs> uh, I'm Nation. Uh, tell the time we have. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so triggered. <laughs> Trump 2024. <laughs> well, since you're so triggered, I'll let you let the Hive Nation know where they can connect with you and they can have a have a little bit of trigger session with you. <laughs> oh goodness, connect with me more on this. I don't know. Did, like, who's listening? Do I want to let people know how to get get in touch with me now? It's probably too late because Google is uh, isn't your friend nowadays. So I'm not gonna lie to you. <laughs> I'm way too easily searched, honestly. Like way too easily searched. Like I'm I'm hesitant sometimes to like you know if, if I were single and going on online dating, I I will put out like a different name or something because you just put my name and it's just like oh, there's 20 pages of Google. But yeah, people want to. It's we not have too a hard. That can help you with uh, risk management and security. <laughs> Maybe reach out to him. <laughs> not so <laughs> subtle shout out. Hey. I've I've had to use him before, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know him? Oh, never mind. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. Yeah. It's how we met. That's, That's like, fun. Investigation services here. <laughs> <laughs> That is a whole other story, but definitely better told offline and with a drink. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. Anyways, Clea, thanks for uh, thanks for being on the program here again. And it just, yeah, anytime. Uh, you're very welcome here for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me on. And uh, I will chat with you gentlemen again soon. You hopefully. bet. Fantastic. Hive Nation, we're out. <laughs> <laughs>